big things I encourage parents to start with, whether you have the finances to buy things at Whole Foods or you are shopping with your food stamps, is to start looking at labels and to understand what it means for something to be an ultra processed food. Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I'm your host. And this week, we are talking about nutrition or diet and your child's behavior. I don't know if you've ever put the two together and and tried to see if there are any correlations, but we have a holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole Birkins, who will be talking to us about um, the links or any correlations between what our child is eating and their behavior. So Mary and I were very excited to speak with her and had lots of questions including the questions that you guys posted on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal um, for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. The Neuro is the first health sciences institution in the world to commit to open science, an approach to research that ensures scientific knowledge is shared widely and transparently. I would also like to thank everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, Thank you to Sandra CSJ for saying that she's very grateful about the Am I the Only One series that we had a couple weeks ago. She says, thank you to the ladies that shared their story. This episode has helped me a lot. I am in my own journey of healing. I had birth trauma as well. I love this podcast. It really touches on important topics. It really helps listening to knowledgeable people and even more when it's backed by science. So thank you so much, Sandra, for sharing this. And I invite all of you to please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. It does mean a lot to Marion and I because it allows us to know what part of this podcast you're enjoying or if you are enjoying it at all. So please take a moment to rate it on iTunes. Before I get into today's topic, I wanted to share something that happened today. I posted on Instagram that I had set up um, a little activity for my kids before making lunch. So as you know, I'm home with a two, a four and a six year old. And sometimes I need a little bit of time to prepare a meal. And it depends on the days. Most of the days they don't mind and they're able to play on their own. But there are some days where they're arguing a little bit more or they want me to stay with them instead of cooking. So I always have something prepared in my mind, something easy. What I did today was I took a couple of their Paw Patrol figurines and their PJ Masks figurines and I hid them around the house so that while I was preparing lunch, they would have to find them. I thought I had hid them properly and very well, but it started off by them really finding them quickly. My six-year-old is getting better at this and knowing some of my spots. And then my two-year-old had an accident. He learned how to use the toilet a couple months ago now. And this led to me having to clean up and to, you know, wash him up. And my little activity finished because my six and four-year-old had found all the figurines and I 
hadn't prepared lunch yet. So I just wanted to share this with you, one, so that you have this little activity where you create a scavenger hunt with some toys that your child has so that it gives you an easy activity to do. But secondly, I wanted to share this with you because sometimes it happens that you see the good part on Instagram and you see that, you know, we create these activities and it looks like everything went well. But I want you to know the other side, that sometimes it just doesn't work out. And actually, my kids were were arguing, which is just an easy sandwich, was hard today. Um, There are easy days and there are harder days and it's normal for everybody. It doesn't matter what sort of training you have in parenting. Kids are kids. And the only thing that changes is for me, what I've been working on is working on myself and changing how I respond to certain events. An event like this would have stressed me out before, but now I'm able to let go of some of them. Some still (laughs) make me feel stressed, but there are other events that I'm able to regulate myself a lot more. All right, let's move on to today's topic. Before I interview guests for the podcast, I always look at the research to see what's out there and then um, try to see what questions would matter to you guys, the audience. If you're not following us yet on Instagram, please follow us at curious underscore neuron. And you can also follow the Curious Neuron podcast at Curious Neuron podcast. And what I do is I'll post question boxes in my stories because I'd love to hear your questions it's important for me to include these in the interviews. And then I look at the research and I also come up with some questions, Mary and I put more thought into it. And as I started looking at these correlations or these relationships between certain foods that our children eat and their behavior, I fell down the rabbit hole and really started digging into this kind of literature. And I don't want this episode to scare you if you have been you know, using certain foods Please don't feel ashamed in any way. As you know, with Curious Neuron, I want to make sure that I bring you all the information possible so that you could decide what you'd like to do with it. Because in the end, you are the parent. You know what's best, not only for your child, but for your for yourself as well. What I loved about the conversation with Dr. Birkins is that she tries to simplify it. It's not about emptying everything in our homes, in our cupboards. It's not about only buying expensive foods because I know that there's a big difference in the quality of food and the price of it. What I love about the conversation that we had with her was that she really tries to make it simple for us and shows us little differences that we can make in our kitchen, in our fridge and our cupboards, little changes that will make a difference for our our children. And as I was looking through the literature, I was finding some correlations and some studies that look at sugar consumption, the quality of the diet and behavior in children, in school children, and showing that when a child is taking in a lot more sugar than they should have, not having enough vitamins, um, they are seeing changes or um, impacts on attention, for example. So it's not that all this will cause ADHD, for instance, but they are seeing correlations between the diet and some of these cognitive or behavioral skills and issues. So it's something that we need to discuss and be more mindful about. It definitely opened my eyes to a lot of these topics, and I hope that it does for you as well. Let's move along to today's interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I'm here today with my co-host, Marion. Hi, Marion. Hi. Hi, everyone. And we are here talking to Dr. Nicole Birkins. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. 
We are excited to speak to you today because we're going to have a little bit of a twist with a topic that we've spoken about before, um, many times actually with Kirsten Ron, which is behavior. But we're bringing in nutrition today, which I'm really curious to hear about the research and to hear about your work as well in this area. Um, I think before we begin, let's get to know you a little bit. And, and I'm curious to know as well how psychology mixed in with nutrition at some point in your journey. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, first of all, I think it's good for people to know that on the personal side, I'm a mom of four. So I live this whole parenting thing. My kids are older now. They're 15 through 22. So I've been at this mom gig for a while and come to it from a very practical level. And that's good for people to know because sometimes they hear from professionals and it's, yeah, but like, how do I really do that in my life? And so I just like for people to know that, yeah, been there, done that, doing it. So I have four kids. And then on the professional side, my journey has taken sort of a winding path. Um, I started out actually in the field of education, working in special education and regular education, but really focused on teaching and learning for kids with more significant uh, emotional and behavioral kinds of needs, what we now call kids who are neurodivergent, which wasn't a term back 25 years ago. You know, we sort of had the categories of autism or ADHD, but we didn't have this broader idea of that. And those were the kids that I worked with and was really blessed to have the opportunity to work in a setting that was very brain focused, very neuroscience focused, which back then was a really new thing. I mean, you know, 25 years ago, there weren't a lot of people in the field of education talking about that. So I taught for several years and then really started to see that the families of these kids were really, their needs were not being met. And they were saying to me, you know, this is awesome. What you're doing with my kids during the school day is great but I'm really struggling at home. I have them the rest of the time. I don't know how to best support them. We're having all these issues. I don't know how to parent them. And so that led me to go back to school and get a doctorate in clinical psychology, really with a desire to be able to work with families from the time when they first began to perhaps have a concern developmentally or mental health wise with their child, all the way through, you know, the evaluation and intervention process. So I have had a private practice in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area now since 2003, focused on evaluation and integrative treatment of kids through young adults with a wide range of neurodevelopmental and mental health issues and really taking a, a brain-based focus, a holistic focus from the standpoint of things like nutrition and lifestyle and a family-based focus. Because too often when we're talking about kids and behaviors or symptoms or challenges, the focus is on the child. And actually kids are part of a broader family system and we can't really get very far if we're not working with parents. So we do a lot of parent-focused work and where the nutrition piece came in is along the way, I began to see a lot of patterns in the kids who were coming in. You know, I was about 10 years into clinical practice and going, you know, this can't be a coincidence that so many of these kids coming in, whether we're talking about anxiety or mood issues or, you know, autism spectrum issues, ADHD, whatever it might be, have this history of physiological health issues, whether it's things like constipation or have never slept well or super picky eaters or have had reflux their whole life, all these things. And at the same time, that sort of intersected with what I was seeing with my two youngest kids who were having some challenges and also having some physiological health challenges. And that got me really interested in delving into the research literature on that. And it was this huge 
huge aha professional career changing moment for me to realize that there's all this research connecting physical health, nutrition, and brain health and behavior. And yet I had been to a lot of schooling at that point. I had a master's degree in education. I had a PhD in clinical psychology. And this was not anything that had ever come up in my training programs. And I thought, well, I need to understand more about this. And so started getting more training in that. And then that led me to go on and actually get another master's of science in nutrition, really wanting to understand the biochemistry of this, wanting to understand the components of nutrition and more broadly integrative health that play into brain development and mental health for kids. Um, And so that really has become my focus area now for the last many years is using all of the tools that I have from my training in child development and education, along with psychology, um, and intersecting those with the nutrition and integrative health piece. And I think that's really where ultimately we get the best outcomes for kids and for parents. I absolutely love that you've taken this holistic approach because even when it comes to a parent asking me about their child's behavior, we can't zoom in on the issue. We need to take, like you said, take that broader approach to it. And as we start zooming out of that situation, we include ourselves, we include their environment, we include their family environment and and so on. So I, I do it that way when I'm speaking with parents, but now you've included everything else, which I absolutely love, including nutrition. And I think you mentioned things like picky eating just now and, and sleep and, and parents have the bells going on now saying, hold on a second. <laughs> what, what, how is my child's diet linked to that and their mood? And so I, I think we have so much to cover with, with that topic on, on its own. I don't even know where to begin. So what sort of things initially got you curious about that? Things that you were seeing within your, your own patients that had those bells going on in terms of nutrition? Yeah. I mean, it was really looking at, okay, these are kids coming in and my clinic sees kids with pretty significant stuff. And often we see kids and through, when I say young adults, that's more like through 30. Now we see infants through, you know, about 30 year olds. And what I began seeing is, okay, so they're coming in and they, most of them had been through years of various kinds of therapies. Most of them were on multiple medications, and yet we're still really symptomatic. We're still really dysregulated with their um, behaviors. We're still really impulsive, super anxious, depressed, whatever it might be. And parents kind of going, we don't know what else to do because we've done all the things that we've been told to do, right? We've gotten help from the school. We've put them in the therapies we were told to do. We've got them on all these medications. And yet they're not doing well. And in some cases, even getting worse. And as I began to delve into like, what else could be going on here? You start to see basic things, even through the lens of our own experience, like, wow, this kid has been constipated their entire life. How, how do we feel when we're constipated? Not good, right? Not at our best, right? This is not the day to be like, hey, you know, I'm going to give this important work presentation and, you know, our mood's not great. So I started to look at it through that lens like, oh, parents are telling me this kid's never slept through the night like ever. And you start looking at those things and you go, well, of course, that has to be a factor here in what's going on, what has been going on in terms of the trajectory of their brain development, but also what's going on now in terms of the acuteness of their symptoms. We know the brain doesn't grow and function well in the absence of enough good restorative quality sleep. So why is it that we would think for, let's take an eight-year-old, 
who's exhibiting all sorts of impulsive, hyperactive behavior, who's not learning well in school, who's getting sent home all the time. Parents are tearing their hair out. This kid's just dysregulated, anxious. And why would we think that we would be able to resolve that simply with some parenting strategies and some Ritalin, right? That doesn't make sense because oh, this kid actually doesn't sleep at night. This kid takes three hours to fall asleep, is up six times in the night, thrashing all through the night, not getting a good night's sleep. Like, why would we expect them to be functioning any differently than they are? And when I started to look at it through that lens of, you know, a child who is having you know, extreme behavior dysregulation, who is, you know, their executive function is poor, whose mood is all over the place. And yet this is a kid who eats macaroni and cheese and drinks Coke, you know, all day long. And literally we have kids who that's what their diet is. And I would start to look at that and go, well, they're kind of functioning exactly how I would expect if that's what is being given to their brain and their body to work with. And so when you start to look at it that way, suddenly it becomes kind of obvious, right? We have this whole body of research literature in these areas showing us that this is exactly right. It it makes me a little feisty around that going, why is this not a key component of what what we're doing for all kids when they're presenting with these things. And why are these not the things we're looking at first before we go to more significant interventions like an evaluation or medication treatment or even intensive behavioral intervention? Why aren't we looking first at these more foundational things and saying, what levers can we pull here to give the brain actually what it needs And then let's see how it functions, right? That's not to say that there might not still be some problems, but what I know is we're not going to get very far with those problems if we are constantly intervening at the top of this pyramid and not doing anything about the foundation of it. Right. So I know if parent is listening, they're thinking, okay, so what is it that is at the foundation of brain health? What do my kids need to eat? And I think it's really interesting that you say like someone's drinking Coke and eating macaroni and cheese. And in that type of diet, right, they're missing all kinds of, uh, I mean, a very limited diet. So it's really like if we're eliminating key nutrients from our diet, then yeah, we're going to show probably deficits, but is it, yeah. So let's break it down in terms of nutrients. Is there, is there certain nutrients you just need to think about in our diets every day? There's, there's a specific answer to that. And then there's a general answer to that. So let's start with general first with what the research shows. What the research shows is that we need the full broad spectrum complement of macro and micro and phytonutrients in order to function well. That That's the big overarching answer. Now that can feel really overwhelming, especially for a parent who maybe has kids who are eating a very ultra processed diet, maybe who have very picky eating tendencies, but that's really the big picture answer is that the more variety we get in terms of our macronutrients, which are our proteins, our fats, and our carbs, and our micronutrients, our vitamins and our minerals, and then our phytonutrients, which are all the things that come from plants that actually make them different colors, those all play vital roles. So what we know from the studies that have been done in the micronutrient research literature, looking at vitamins and minerals, is that many of these kids, we need to make sure that they're getting good broad spectrum nutrient coverage. And oftentimes that means looking at supplementation because they're not getting it through their diet. And even if we're going to make some changes to their diet, that can take time 
especially if it's a child with major sensory issues, feeding disorders, things like that. So we want to look at that, getting them the full complement of those micronutrients that they need. But specifically, the research points to several nutrients that we want to be paying attention to if a child is struggling with development and with behavior and with mental health kinds of things. And so there we're thinking about things like omega-3 fatty acids, which probably are the nutrient that is most researched now in the field of mental health and and child development specifically. We've got decades of research on that now. Omega-3 fatty acids are found in things like fatty cold water fish. So salmon, sardines, tuna, mackerel, those kinds of things. They are also found in uh, some nuts and some seeds. They are found in grass-fed beef, egg yolks, things like that. So we're talking about primarily some animal protein products here. And what omega-3 fatty acids do is really give the brain literally the exact type of fats that it needs to have the proper cell membrane to actually form brain cells. The brain is 60% fat. When you look at it by dry weight, it's the majority of it is fat. And the majority of that fat is omega-3 fatty acids. So one of the things that we're seeing in the research and, and just clinically is that when people, children or adults aren't getting enough omega-3 fatty acids, their brain doesn't have the types of fats that it needs, not only for forming cell membranes, but also for allowing the proper communication between brain cells. And so that's just really key. And we've got studies now showing that when we improve omega-3 fatty acid status for people, um, we can improve all kinds of symptoms, whether we're talking about depression to things like ADHD symptoms in children. Um, and I want to be clear about this. This does not mean that every child with a diagnosis of ADHD is going to not have ADHD if we give them more omega-3 fatty acids, right? I think that's really important because actually what we call ADHD is probably 200 to 500 different specific presentations of genetics, environmental factors. But what we do know from the research is that for a significant percentage of kids with that diagnosis, supplementing with therapeutic levels of omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA and EPA, have a positive impact on their symptoms, particularly behavioral dysregulation, particularly that, you know, impulsivity and that mood, you know, irritability kind of component. So omega-3s become, you know, super important. And then some of the other basics for kids who are having struggles are iron. It's amazing to me how many kids present to our clinic, either suboptimal or clearly deficient iron levels, and they're having all kinds of symptoms. Of course they are. The brain, especially the developing brain, needs iron to regulate all kinds of processes. And often kids who are very hyperactive and impulsive, very dysregulated, not sleeping well, Iron status is one of the first things I'm looking at because that is, that's a, a very, that's low hanging fruit intervention wise. That's so simple. It, it, it takes almost no effort at all to get a kid's iron status up and you can see remarkable changes. Now, again, does that mean 
that they have no symptoms or don't qualify for a diagnosis anymore? No, not necessarily. But if we take a child who's not able to learn well and think clearly, who is totally unfocused, who's impulsive, who's not sleeping, and we improve their iron status, and now they are sleeping well, and they're able to slow down and to focus more, now all the other interventions that we might use are going to work better. So that iron piece is big. Zinc is another big one in the research, vitamin D, and really our B vitamins as well, particularly B6, B9, B12 are the ones that we have the most robust research literature around. This is a growing field. This field of what we might call integrative mental health or more specifically nutritional psychiatry and nutritional psychology, these are now established fields that are growing. And so we've seen much more research come out on these issues and these specific nutrients in the last decade. And that that's going to continue. I see it really as the next frontier of mental health treatment, of understanding what's actually going on for kids and adults with these symptoms and treating it. But those are some of the specific nutrients that we're thinking about when kids are presenting with symptoms. And we're talking now about older children, but what we had an interesting conversation with Dr. Callahan from UCLA who studies the microbiome, and she was talking about nutrition early on in infant years. That's right. So everything that you're talking about now with the zinc and the iron and the vitamin B and, and so on and D, this is something that we should be aware of from the start, right? Ideally, preconception, moms and dads. Often the focus is on maternal nutrition status, maternal microbiome status, and that is important. But we're discovering now through the very interesting research that's being done that dad's microbiome and dad's nutrition status is just as important. So, you know, ideally we're thinking about these things with moms and dads before they're moms and dads, but, you know, uh, we all know how that goes, right? Sometimes you just like, you're not planning for these things and that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, the, the microbiome is such an interesting area of research. And we know that there's a setup for that in kids uh, while they're in utero. And certainly during the birth process and certainly in the days, weeks, and months after that. And I think the microbiome, I do a lot of speaking around the microbiome. I work with some companies that are focused on that. And this is where I really see where the research is showing us are a lot of the connections between why nutrient status is so critical and food intake is so critical for brain function specifically. And it all has to do with the food that we eat not only provides the specific nutrient building blocks that our body needs, whether it's forming tissues in the body or allowing for transmission of information in the brain. But the food we eat also feeds this community of microorganisms in our gut, which actually plays a huge role in our brain function. And so I think that's really what we're seeing with a lot of kids and adults where they're getting the basic nutrients that they need to function physically and mentally, but they're not getting the mix of what their microbiome really needs. And so we've got this, all this dysbiosis or this imbalance of things in the gut, which then has a significant impact on neurotransmitter um, function in the brain, on the brain's ability to communicate within and between uh, the parts of itself and the rest of the central nervous system. And so I think that microbiome component is really sort of the, the bridge to help us understand more about why what we eat 
is so impactful for how our brain functions. That's really interesting because I think when people think about food, they're thinking of it often as as energy and calories, and we need it to for maybe to build muscles or to run and th- and 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 that type of energy. When you break down the nutrients, can you tell us a little bit about how these nutrients? and you've spoken about it a little, but a little more details or a little, we could go over it a little bit more about how these nutrients actually can get to our brain and cause, you know, increased cognitive functioning or, or changes in our behavior. Yeah. So there's all of these biochemical processes going on within the brain and body constantly, right? So what we eat, you know, there's these nutrients in it, whether we're talking about macronutrients like protein or carbohydrates or things like that, but then all the micronutrients within them. And when we're talking about proteins, maybe you all can think back to your biology class or something and you think what makes up proteins, amino acids or the building blocks for proteins. Well, why do we care about amino acids when we're talking about brain development and brain function and mental health? Because many of those amino acids are key for building the neurotransmitters that our brain needs to function. So this is one really simple example to look at. Okay, we eat, let's say, a piece of fish or a piece of meat or some quinoa, something that's protein rich. Well, what our body really wants from that is the amino acids, breaks those proteins down, sort of like clips them up into all these amino acids. And the amino acids, one of the important things they do is form neurotransmitters like serotonin, like dopamine, like norepinephrine, all those um, neurochemicals you maybe have heard about that regulate so much about how our brain functions, right? People often have heard about serotonin, you know, sort of that happy neurotransmitter, which is a gross oversimplification. Serotonin actually does a whole lot for us, but people think about that because they think about SSRI medications. Oh, you're depressed or you're struggling, you're anxious. So, you know, you get put on Prozac or something like that. That's a serotonin medication. Oh, we want to, you know, improve your serotonin levels so you feel better. So that's a, an example that many people are familiar with, but what may I think because of those commercials, right? That's right. We all saw the commercials. Like I, I, I don't know. They at some point I don't, haven't seen them recently, but the the commercials where you see the the connection, the synapse between the two neurons, and then they zoom in. I think they're actually really great. But there's been this huge focus on serotonin and blocking that serotonin reuptake inhibitors. <laughs> Everyone could visualize that. And actually, one of the problems is that that's sort of a story that the pharmaceutical companies have told that unfortunately is not supported by the research literature. Do some people benefit from these meds? Yes. Do we understand why? And is it as simple as just they don't have enough serotonin, so we give them more? It's not. And in fact, that whole line of research, which could be a whole nother episode, there's a lot of issues with that. People are familiar with that, right? You know, they've seen the commercials. And so you think, well, what makes serotonin? How do we get serotonin? Well, our body and our brain makes serotonin with Amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of those neurochemicals. Interestingly enough, the gut microbiome also produces serotonin along with a whole lot of other neurochemicals that are needed. So guess what happens when someone's gut microbiome is imbalanced and not working very well? They are not producing a lot of those neurotransmitters um, that then allow the central nervous system to function well so that the brain can function well. So there's all these pieces that when you start to look at the web of connections amongst all these things, suddenly you realize, oh yeah, so what's on the end of my fork or what's on my kid's plate actually is about so much more than just 
are they progressing or maintaining on the growth chart when we go into the pediatrician every year, which is how a lot of people think about it. You know, that's what you said. People think about, well, is my kid getting enough calories to grow? And unfortunately, that's how a lot of medical professionals look at it too. You know, I'll have kids come in with clearly deficient diets and on lab testing, they are clearly suboptimal or frankly deficient in a variety of micronutrients. And yet, you know, their practitioner, their healthcare practitioner is going, well, you know, they're, they're maintaining on the growth chart. So they're good. There is this big need to understand the difference between what a child needs to maintain physical growth and an adequate weight for height and what they need to actually support optimal brain development. Those are two very different things because you can have a child eating a diet of ultra processed foods what are the common ones? Pizza, hot dogs, mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, you know, juice, whatever. And they'll grow. They will physically grow. But are they getting what they acids? Are they getting the B vitamins that they need and the phytonutrients that they need and the zinc and the iron that they need to run all of those biochemical and enzymatic processes in the brain and body that allow for proper energy production, regulation of the release of things to stabilize blood sugar, because that's a whole nother issue of kids riding this blood sugar roller coaster all day long. And we go, well, why are they moody and irritable and hyper and, you know, can't focus? And it's like, well, when you've got blood sugar going like this all day long, that happens to all of us. And so understanding that the components in these foods, the nutrients in these foods actually are needed to run those chemical and enzymatic processes in the brain and the body that allow for proper function. Iron is a great example. And this may be one that a lot of people can relate to. Maybe you've had some anemia at some point in your life, or, you know, you went in for a, a physical and found out you, you know, didn't have great iron levels. Well, how does that feel? Well, we feel pretty run down. We feel pretty fatigued. This can happen to um, a lot of women at various points in their life development, uh, whether it's iron loss through their monthly cycle or associated with pregnancy or hormone changes. Well, how do we feel when we have suboptimal or deficient iron levels? We feel tired. We feel foggy. We feel like ah, this is so much effort to have to think clearly about things. We struggle with focus. Our sleep isn't great. Well, as an adult, we can recognize that's going on and maybe manage that or reconcile that or whatever. But kids don't know, you know, that that's what's happening. And all they know is, well, this is how it feels to be me. Right. And parents don't realize that, you know, I could be because their nutrient status is poor. Um, and I'll tell you something paradoxical about this that's interesting. Iron status, something like, you know, having low iron status in us as adults, it presents as fatigue and low energy, which we're sluggish, right? I can tell when, when a teenager comes into my office, there's telltale signs that this person's probably anemic. They're sluggish. They've got dark circles under their eyes. They are not processing as quickly. They have complaints of being foggy or not being able to focus in class. But for younger kids, very often the way that iron deficiency presents is as totally wound up hyperactive behavior. Well, how can that be possible? Because it's low energy, it's fatigue, but you often get these paradoxical reactions in kids. If you've ever had a child of your own who has gotten so overtired that now they're just wound up and like all <laughs> over the place. 
I was going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's what we see in kids. So we, we assume when a kid is all over the place and bouncing off the walls and hyper that it's because they have too much energy, but often very, very often the issue is actually that they're not having steady, adequate um, energy production due to suboptimal iron or, you know, other kinds of, um, you know, things that may be going on for them. And so you get this totally wound up and they can't settle down. And that looks to us like, well, how could they possibly be fatigued? They're actually desperately fatigued. Very often these kids are not getting anywhere near the amount of sleep that they need and they're all wound up. So just um, sort of a, an interesting, like uh, upside down thing that we often see in kids that gets misinterpreted. <laughs> I was just going to just follow up on the iron. If we could just talk about where we get our iron and, and how much in a day a typical um, child should get. Yeah. So iron, primarily the most absorbable forms of iron are heme iron, and that comes from animal proteins. So we're talking about our beef, our chicken, our pork, our fish, um, you know, eggs, um, anything that's an animal product, dairy, any of those. Now there is non-heme iron also for people who are doing plant-based diets. You can certainly get iron from plants, dark leafy greens, nuts and seeds, cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, quinoa. Quinoa, interestingly enough, is the only uh, what we call complete protein outside of animal products. So animal products are complete proteins. And what that means is a serving of animal product gives us the entire complement of amino acids, essential amino acids that we need and non-essential. So a lot of plants, that's not the case, but quinoa is the exception. Quinoa is a complete protein, which is why if I have somebody coming in on a vegetarian or a vegan diet, that's really important to incorporate because it makes sure they're getting all of the amino acids that they need. So for those of you who are thinking, oh gosh, my kid doesn't eat any animal proteins or is really like reticent to eat even any of those iron rich vegetables or, or plant proteins. It's definitely something that you want to have on your radar. If your child is struggling because iron supplementation is such an easy thing to do and what, how much iron kids need ranges depending on the phase of growth that they're into. Obviously kids actually in infancy and early toddlerhood need a ton. And then again, Again, in adolescence, they need a lot. And so it kind of waxes and wanes. But in general, what we want to be thinking about, you know, a serving size of protein is about the size of your fist or your child's fist. This is often a thing that I see because people go, oh my gosh, I need to put all this food. Like I read that a serving size is the size of a fist. And it's like, right, but not your fist. That's for you. <laughs> so, you know, and especially if you're doing animal protein, you don't need a lot of it to get what they need, but you want to be making sure that they're having at least a couple of servings of that ideally in the day. Or if that isn't possible, either because of cultural or religious dietary restrictions or just family preference, or as is most often the case, picky eating challenges, feeding disorders, then we look to supplementation, which is very quick and effective. And there are formulas that we can use to supplement very absorbable iron in kids um, you know, little ones all the way uh, through that's tolerable for them. You know, iron levels typically come up in anywhere from four to eight weeks. It's not a really difficult thing, whether we're doing it through food or supplementation. It's one of the low hanging fruit, unlike something like vitamin D, which if a kid is really low in that, 
that's a slower moving nutrient. We need to do aggressive supplementation for six months and then redraw a blood sample to see change there. But something like iron comes up pretty quickly. And so I say to parents, you should be seeing some positive effects of that relatively quickly. If you are focused on either incorporating more iron in the diet through the foods that you're feeding or you're doing supplementation. I'd like to dig deeper into um, supplementation because I'm thinking of parents that are listening and a big majority of them that reach out to me have have a picky eater in their home. So how do we, let's say those nuggets and the macaroni and cheese and the juice is, is what they're used to. And it's the only way we can get our child to eat. What can a parent do? Can they just supplement with vitamins and say, okay, they can continue eating that way, but at least I know they're getting their vitamins or should there be a push to kind of change their, their diet? Ideally it's both. I will say that I have also worked with some children in the course of my career and that my clinic works with who have such severe, long-standing feeding disorders, especially kids who maybe have been on feeding tubes long-term, who the process of shifting their diet is absolutely possible, but it is very slow because you have all of the anxiety and you know the, the oral motor and the sensory. There's a lot of layers to that. So I have an incredible amount of empathy for parents who are trying to get better nutrition via food in a kid with with those issues. And so you just work slowly, but ideally you do both. And I think this is the practical piece of it. You know, so often I think parents go, oh, you know, I get that that's important. I get that my kid's diet is probably not, you know, supporting them in the best way, but it just feels totally overwhelming to do this. And and so what we want to do is look at both. We want to look at what are the things that we can and should be doing to help expand a child's palate and help them get comfortable with eating a broader variety of things, ideally that are more nutrient dense. And at the same time, how can we get these nutrient building blocks in them that they need to help support their function? Because that becomes sort of a hamster wheel if we're only going to intervene on the food side, but they're so anxious that they can't eat the foods and we're not giving them any nutrient support to help bring the anxiety down. You just spin around and around and you don't get anywhere. So that's where supplementation becomes key in supporting the brain and the body, giving it more what it needs to help get those symptoms in a more manageable place. So that the things that we're doing with exposing them to new foods offering different options, having them do experimentation with those things, uh, implementing other good approaches in the realm of feeding therapy and, you know, picky eating uh, therapy, that those things can work better. But if you've got a kid who's so anxious and who has such severe sensory processing issues and such, you know, impulsivity and such dysregulated behavior, we've got to intervene on the side of giving them nutrient support. So it's both, I think, is the answer. And on the other end of that, I'm also thinking of parents who struggle with putting a meal on the table. If you're, there's a cost to the healthier food, right? There is also time that it takes. I, I'm wondering if you have any advice for those parents that struggle with that part of it. Lots. And we at our <laughs> clinic work with a significant number of families with financial and other even locational obstacles to we think about when we talk about things like eating healthier, which I don't even like saying that I talk about nutrient density, the goal is nutrient density that can be done. Even on WIC and food stamps that can be done. If your only option is going to the corner 
store in your neighborhood. It's helping parents know what are the things you need to look for. And there's no problem with using frozen, with using canned options, as long as you know what to look for. And we can do that inexpensively. And it's interesting when we look at you know, nutrition research that's been done around the world. And you look at what some countries with extreme poverty and you look at actually they're eating a pretty good nutrient dense diet compared to what a lot of American kids are because they're eating a lot of things like beans and rice and these kinds of things, which, and they're not processed that they are not laden with high fructose corn syrup and fancy colors to make them, you know, more attractive. And so actually some kids, you know, in some parts of the world where we'd think, oh, they probably don't get a very good diet are actually getting more nutrient density than kids in America are, or I should say kids in the West. So when we're talking about nutrient density, there's a few things to really look at there. And one of the big things I encourage parents to start with, whether you have the finances to buy things at Whole Foods or you are shopping with your food stamps, is to start looking at labels and to understand what it means for something to be an ultra processed food. This is a uniquely Western problem in the world of we have shifted to such a significant percentage of our food intake falls in this category of what the research calls ultra processed food, meaning it has had a lot of not only mechanical processing done to it, but also a lot of chemical processing done to it. They've added a ton of things for flavor, for color, for texture. And the research is so, so clear that a diet high in ultra processed foods leads to markedly worse physical and mental health for children and adults. There's just no getting around that now. The research is very clear. And in fact, a study that came out, but it was done on data that the the data collection period ended in 2018. So this was Mm pre-pandemic. And what this showed is that pre-pandemic, children in the United States were consuming 67% of their calories daily from ultra processed foods. Now, the preliminary data we have coming out from the pandemic shows us that that's even higher. But pre-pandemic, 65% of calories from ultra-processed foods. Why is that a problem? Because ultra-processed foods don't have good nutrient density. They have a lot of things like high fructose corn syrup, cane sugar, a lot of added sweeteners, a lot of dyes, a lot of preservatives, and The macronutrients in them, let's take carbs as an example, let's take flour, you know, you think of whole wheat flour, well, that's processed, they've taken the wheat and they've ground it up, so it's Mm. processed, but it has the full complement of nutrients. Now, when we process it further and bleach it to make white flour, that's pulling out most of the valuable nutrients in that wheat to get this refined, more palatable, sweet, white color and consistency. But the problem with that is we've sacrificed the nutrient density. So that's the problem with ultra processed foods. And how do you know if something's ultra processed? The easiest way to tell is you flip it over, you look at the label and you see how long the ingredient list is. If that ingredient list, if you're looking at that and going, wow, 
that's pretty big. And I'm reading through that and I don't know how to pronounce some of those things. I don't even know what they are. I wouldn't cook with them if I was making this food in my kitchen. That is an indication that that's an ultra processed food. And not only do we know that the chemicals and the additives and the added sugars and things are problematic for kids' brains and bodies, but also just the poor nutrient content is a problem. So that's one of the things that we start having parents look at is just becoming aware, like look at the things that are typically in your pantry and in your house, how much of what your kids are eating for meals and snacks is ultra processed. And how can we start to shift to some less processed things? Not all at once, not going through with garbage bags and saying, I got to overhaul this today because for most people that doesn't work. I know it wouldn't, you know, doesn't work in my house. Um, but how can we start making some shifts? If my kids used to eating this fruit snack that I look at the ingredient list and it's got blue and red dyes and it's got high fructose corn syrup as the first or second ingredient. And when I look at the added sugar on the label, it's got, you know, 18 grams of added sugar in a pack. Okay. What can I find at the store that's still simple and easy, that's still a fruit snack, but that maybe has five or six grams of added sugar that maybe uses straight up sugar instead of high fructose corn syrup that maybe uses vegetable dye instead of, you know, blue dye, number 40, you know, red five, those kinds of things. And you just start looking at making some swaps that just get, you know, foods that your kid's eating out of that ultra processed category um, so that there's a bit more nutrient density and, and less of, you know, the additives that can be problems. And, and that's, that's how I encourage parents just to start getting the ball rolling with this because it's an adjustment for us and for our kids. I love that you have that process because a lot of parents might be overwhelmed with everything we're saying today, right? And we're speaking about and might feel guilty if they Mm -hmm. look in their cupboard and realize that everything is ultra processed. But I love your take in the sense that we have to just slowly start making some changes. And maybe we could dive into that a little bit more in terms of maybe understanding what to look for that we could start removing. I know you said to look at the labels, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure parents want to know, you know, what should I be looking for in my cupboard or my fridge or my freezer? And what should I be adding a little bit more of into my pantry? Absolutely. So I think sugar is a great place to start. Hmm. Sugar is a great place to start because the research is so clear. And if people are interested in in really delving into more of that, the book Sugar Proof by uh, Drs. Emily Ventura and Michael Grant, there's no getting around that high levels of sugar are problematic. And, you know, we're seeing rates of type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in kids now that we never saw. Two decades ago, we did not see that in children. And now it's there. And that has, you know, pervasive effects on their brain function and mental health too. So sugar is where I often have people start. And here's a good benchmark to think about. So the couple of medical um, organizations that have come out with guidelines on sugar intake for kids are in a fair amount of agreement that 25 grams of added sugar in a day should be our upper limit. Now that might sound like a lot. You go, oh my gosh, 25 grams of added sugar. Like that sounds like a lot of sugar. Well, when you start looking at what's in a lot of the things that we, you know, feed kids, suddenly you go, oh my goodness, by the time lunch rolls around, they've already had over 25 grams of added sugar. Now what's Mm -hmm. added sugar? Added sugar is literally sugar or sweeteners that have been added beyond what's contained in the food itself. So a good example would be, 
like an apple versus an apple juice. Okay. The apple has sugar in it. It's got natural sugar, but that's not added sugar because it's the sugar that's in it. But if we take the apple and we squeeze it and we make apple juice and we add sweeteners to it, you know, to, to make it sweeter. Now that's got added sugar in it, or we take the apple and we make, um, you know, apple pie out of it. Well, we've added sugar. So that's added sugar. So the goal is not to have no sugar. Sugar is present in uh, fruits, sugar is in, present in things that we eat, but it's the added sugar. So that's where you want to just start with awareness of starting to look at things your kid eats on a regular basis. And you say, oh, how much added sugar are we having? It's not surprising at all for parents to come back to me and go, um, on average, we're at like 75 to 100 grams of added sugar in a day. Wow. And that doesn't count the teenagers who I have do this, who come in and, and have like this stunning realization that that um, Frappuccino run they're making a few days uh, a week after school, they'll come back and they'll be like, Dr. Nicole, that that drink has 92 grams of sugar in it. That's like almost four days worth of my sugar. And I go, yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, <laughs> or the smoothie places. You know, I've had so many kids and parents come in and they're like, well, we do the smoothies. That's good. And I'm like, yeah. There's, there's some good nutrients in the fruits that are in there. And next time you're there, just take a look at, you know, at the nutrition facts on the wall and see, and they'll come in horrified. Like that smoothie has 85 grams of added sugar in it. It's like, yeah. So just awareness around that, because then that mm. that's empowering, right? Then you go, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to take all of these things that we enjoy out of our diet. I just need to look at swapping those for things that don't have all of this added sugar. So things that are sweetened with natural fruits, things that are sweetened with dates, things that are, you know, those types of things. And if we are going to do some things with added sugar, which is fine, especially at the holidays, right? (laughs) Um, If we are going to do that, let's balance that out, right? Mm -hmm. So if I know we're going to a party where there's going to be cake and cookies and whatever, what do I want to serve my kids for lunch and myself for lunch prior to that? I'm going to not do added sugars in our lunch. I'm going to focus more on proteins, healthy fats, you know, those types of things, because I know we're going to get the sugars later. And so it just is empowering to just start to think about that and to teach kids about this. And so I think that's the piece, first of all, is to just start being aware and saying, you know, let's kind of play game. Let's see if we can get under 25 grams of sugar on a regular basis. <laughs> um, and a big one there, and this is one of the simplest things that I start having families do, switch to water for your beverages. I know people will say, my kid doesn't like water. Well, when kids have a palate that has been very acclimated to sweet, whether that's juice, milks, those kinds of things, yeah, they don't like water. But water is an easy switch to make because it's easy to just say, I'm not bringing soda pop in the house anymore, right? You have control over that. You can say, I, you know, this is not, this is not great. If we go to a party or the movies or whatever, we might do soda, but we're not bringing it into the house. Same with juice. I've got some kids at the clinic who are drinking a lot of juice. And even if it's naturally sweetened, it's still a lot of sugar without any of the fiber content to balance it out. So you can start watering down the juice little by little to get kids' palates, their taste acclimated to less sweetness. But when we can get kids switched over to water, that dramatically, instantly brings down the amount of added sugar in 
their food intake and beverage intake in a day with no added expense and actually saving money there. And, you know, you can add fun ice cubes, give kids a fun straw, let them pick a water bottle. (laughs) I like to get the ice cube trays, let kids pick the fruits or things that they They like, put them in there, make some fun fruit filled ice, make it in different shapes. You know, younger kids, especially they love Mm -hmm. that. Let them put stickers Mm -hmm. all over their, you know, water Mm -hmm. bottle. That's their put a crazy straw in it. But that's that again is a good thing that we can just start to do. And we've got studies showing that most kids are walking around at least mildly dehydrated. They've done studies in classroom environments, even mild dehydration reduces focus and attention and reduces academic achievement. So that's why I'm a big proponent of kids being allowed to have water bottles in the classroom, kids being able to access water during the day because it's so important for our brains to work. So those are some beginning things along with, you know, you said, what can we put in? I think the things that kids need more of more than anything else is produce. Most kids are so deficient in produce. It's not uncommon at all for me to do intakes on kids who literally have not a single fruit or vegetable in their diet. Or if they do, it's in the form of like fruit juice or a popsicle or something like that. So I don't even focus on, hey, here's the number of servings of produce that ideally you get in your diet. I just focus on, can we add another one? Can we get one in? Can we look at a way to get a serving or an additional serving of produce in your kid's diet? Maybe that is they have this ranch dressing that they love and we're going to start to play around with, you know, some cut up different colors of peppers or carrot shreds or celery or whatever it is. And we're just going to get them acclimated, you know, to that. Or, you know, maybe they have a chip dip that they like that they usually eat chips and that's cool. Can we switch to a veggie chip? And then can we switch to some actual veggies? How can we start to get this in? Can I get a kid who loves plain noodles with spaghetti sauce to do a spaghetti sauce that we have finely chopped up something like spinach or kale and added that in there just to get an additional nutrient boost? For a kid who loves their ice cream or popsicles, can we whip up a berry smoothie that's made with some good quality protein powder. And can we put that in popsicle molds? And now they have an ice cream smoothie treat that gets more of those nutrients in there. So there's so many ways to think about this, but I think getting in more of the produce and color, we talked about eat the rainbow. And that's because a lot of people don't realize what makes fruits and vegetables, the different colors that they are is the phytonutrients in them. Mm -hmm. And each of those plays really important roles. So the more we can get a rainbow in ourselves and our kids, the better, you know, kids sort of gravitate to this. I'm like, oh, You've already got red foods. And now like, let's make a list. What could you pick out to get a green food in once this week? Did I get all the colors in? And so that's a way to approach it too. So we can make it fun. We can educate them. I don't ever want this to be a burden or a shame filled thing or adding additional stress. We can find ways to do this that better support everybody and in sort of a fun, you know, easier kind of way. Even when we include our kids, I've discovered with my own kids, when we include them in creating a salad together and they cut the yes. cucumber or they cut the boiled eggs, yep. all of a sudden they, they're they more interested in having it and eating it for their dinner because mm-hmm. they were part of it. Totally. Um, so that's something I've noticed that works really well in our home. If kids are picky, if you're like, my kid won't eat that, don't focus on the eating. 
Start with exposure. Bring them to the market with you to put things in bags. Have them cut things up. Have them, let them play. Do arts and crafts. I want to know for the anxious parent who's listening, their heart rate starts spiking when they their grandparent gives their kid a juice box. And they've heard all this, this information. They say, I've, I've been trying to cut out sugar, but uh, there's only so much you can do. And, and a, a grandparent gives a juice box. What, what do you say to that, that parent? What I say is it's not the end of the world unless your kid has some sort of like allergy or severe issue. And, and let's be clear. There are some kids. There are There is a category of kids who absolutely there is no leeway. There is no room for someone giving them something that is not on their food plan because they have a severe allergy sensitivity. Um, they, they are diabetic, whatever it right. might be. So I want to recognize that because sometimes I think in general, the discussion around healthy eating or nutritious, you know, stuff for, for kids and for adults goes too far to the extreme of you need to be rigid and not allow anything in. And that's not where I fall with it, but we can then go too far the other way as well saying, you know, everything's okay. And, and the reality is for some kids, it's not. If your mother-in-law is giving your kid something that literally is not safe or appropriate for them, then obviously that's a boundaries issue. That's a conversation. That's whatever. But for most of us, you know, it's not the end of the world. And we need to stop thinking about this issue around food and nutrition as if every single thing that we eat or that our kids eat needs to be analyzed, micromanaged, and is something to be stressed about. And actually, we have a diagnosis now around that. You know, orthorexia is the diagnosis that we use. And I see some teens and certainly some parents in that category of they've become so obsessed about every little thing that goes in their mouth and nutrient density. That's not healthy either. There's a good middle ground here. Sometimes we can plan ahead, right? We know when we're going to be in those situations. Yep. Great Aunt Betty's going to, you know, she's going to have that bowl of candy out and that's going to be what it. So again, what can I feed my child before we leave so that they're less likely to be super hungry and gorge on, you know, the basket of candies that's there. Or I know that, you know, my mother-in-law is going to give the juice box. And so I'm going to make sure that my kid has water, you know, for the day leading up to it. Sometimes we can prepare for that. But if you can't, you know, you go, okay. This isn't ideal, but it's also not the end of the world. We're looking at this in the big picture. And so if you're feeling as a parent anxious about this, I want you to take the broad perspective. Just like we as adults should not be weighing ourselves every day or constantly throughout the day, that's not a healthy thing. We also, for our kids, don't want to be so hyper-focused every single thing that we lose the broader perspective. I want you to look at over the course of a week. On the whole... Are we fairly balanced here? On the whole, looking at what my child's eating now versus a month or two ago, have we progressed? That's how I want people looking at it, not getting anxious or panicked or micromanaging the every little thing, because that's not healthy. And that also sets up a problematic parent-child dynamic that not only then seeps into eating stuff, with them, but sort of seeps into all of our other interactions with them of it being more about control and, um, and, and that sets up power struggles that are, that are not good. So is, does that, does that make sense? Sort of that broader perspective, as opposed to like just every single tiny thing along the way. 
Yeah, for sure. I love that because I think we need the reminder because when you, you see it on social media, you see it all the time. Like take, I, I would say that I see it, take out the sugar, take out the sugar, take out the sugar. And at some point you've done it. And so we have to just recognize, yeah, my kids don't drink juice all day. And if you're in that category that they are, you can make these changes, but not to always be reanalyzing and worrying about any added sugar or any preservatives or, or things in our food. And I think that's really, that's a really important point. Again, barring your child having an allergy or a significant sensitivity or some sort of medical issue, it's a really important point because when we are overly controlling and restrictive with what our kids eat, we unintentionally set them up for a dysfunctional relationship with food and the potential for eating disorders and issues later on. And we don't want to do that. We want to help them develop a healthy relationship with food, which means making these changes, involving them in them, educating them, helping them understand why I've said, you know, cookies will be available tomorrow, but they're not available again today. And and here's why. And you can be sad about that. I I feel sad about that too, when there's, you know, no more cookies to be had. (laughs) But, you know, educating them because kids can understand and they won't always adhere to those things. But when we plant the seeds and we give them options and we let them have the experience of eating things that maybe don't make them feel real good, especially as they get into the preteen and teen years, educate them, model, have your home be set up with eating in a way that feels comfortable to you, but don't micromanage what they do outside the home. Mm -hmm. Let them figure that out. When my son, who's now 18, when he was younger, he had a terrible issue with dairy and eczema. Still does, but it's managed, right? So when he was younger, we educated him about that, took him off the dairy, got his skin cleared up, like did the things we needed to do there. But then as he started getting into those preteen and teen years of going out more, doing activities outside the house, friends, whatever, look, he knows the connection. He understands it. He's experienced it. And you let them live that. And he would come back from a weekend at a friend's house of, you know, ice cream and pizza and whatever. And then that next week he'd be like, oh, like I have so much eczema. Oh, it hurts. And I'm like, yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Just throwing out there like, gosh, I wonder, I wonder why, you know, do you have any ideas why your eczema might be so bad right now? And he'd go, I ate all the dairy. I go, oh yeah. You know, sometimes we make those choices. Right. And I talk about that for myself too. I have become really attuned for myself over the years of how different foods make me feel. And I spotlight that for my kids. And sometimes I choose to eat things that I know are not going to feel great to me. And I make the choice anyway. And I, I just am aware of what the consequence will be. And I think we need to let kids have that experience because when they are given the knowledge and then the opportunity to, to make some of those choices and have the live experience of that, that's what helps them then as they grow into adulthood self-regulate around those things better. If we micromanage and say, you can't have any of the stuff and no, and it's not in the house and you can't go here and you can't have it. What do they do? They get to college or they get out on their own for the first time and they go nuts with it. They have no ability to self-regulate because they haven't learned how to do that. That's important that we take this more balanced, you know, nuanced approach with this. What are sort of things that we should be mindful of when we're having I guess, a discussion with our children or the language that we could be using in their environment when it comes to food. Because like you mentioned before, I think one of my priorities with my kids and food is that I do, you know, build a healthy relationship with food 
Um, so of course, with three young kids, you know, cookie for breakfast would be the best thing in their mind. And then another one for a snack and another one for lunch. So they will ask often for food, but we do have restrictions in our home. You know, cookies are a treat for once in a while and you That's can't right. have heavy sugar cereals in the morning. You'll have mm-hmm. oatmeal and you'll have yogurt or something else. Um, mm-hmm. but they ask a lot and I, I always want to be mindful yeah. that I'm not making the sugar seem like the bad guy, but that we have to balance. So what are sort of things that we should be mindful of? So this is key. I'm so glad you raised this. I don't ever um, talk about foods as good or bad. I don't even really like talking about them as healthy or unhealthy. Like food is just food. I talk about with kids, even even the little ones here at the clinic, you know, the, the preschoolers. Food is information for our brain and body. Food is building blocks for our brain and body. Some foods have more information and building blocks for our brain and body to use than others. So why are we not having cookies every morning for breakfast? I would love to have cookies every morning for breakfast. You know why Dr. Nicole doesn't eat cookies every morning for breakfast? Because I I have to go to work and use my brain and I need to be able to think about things with kids like you and, and have the energy to do all these fun games and things that we're doing. And you know what? cookies for breakfast, it doesn't give my brain and my body the building blocks that it needs to have that energy so that we can have fun and so that I can think about things and remember what you're telling me. So I have a smoothie with some berries and things and because that gives my brain and my body the information and the building blocks it needs so that I can do my job and so that we can have so much fun. And they get it. And I have parents spotlight that. Like I want parents spotlighting that. Like when a kid, when you know, they have been at the party at school and they have just like gone nuts with all of it. And later on they're like their stomach hurts or they can't settle down or I can't fall asleep or they are like falling apart. And you just go, oh, I know that it's so hard. It's so hard when we've put, you know, all of that candy and cookies and cupcakes and oh man, all, you know, our brain just doesn't have what it needs to manage, you know, me saying it's time to turn the TV off and go to bed now. And you can really empathize. You can go, oh, I get it. My brain feels the same way when I eat all the cookies and candy. Tomorrow, I'll give you something for breakfast that will give your brain all of the information that it needs to feel better about this. It's these kinds of ways of talking about it. And as they grow older, then spotlighting that Um, modeling it ourselves, talking about that for ourselves. Just the other day, I ended up drinking quite a bit more coffee and later into the day than I normally do. And so I'm sitting there at night in the living room and my two high schoolers are there and it's like eight o'clock and I'm feeling like wired, like I am not going to be able to sleep. And my daughter was like, well, like, what did you do? And I said, you know, as I'm thinking about the day, I had way more coffee than I did. Like, this is going to be a problem for me at 10 o'clock when I go to bed. But we talk about that stuff, right? I want them to hear me making those connections for myself and spotlighting it for them so that they can start to connect the dots. That's empowering. That's not micromanaging or controlling their experience with food. That is empowering them to be aware of and understand how what they eat intersects with how they feel and function so that they can make decisions about that. Right. And to me, like, that's the goal with all of this. I love that. I've told parents the same thing about like emotion regulation skills where you're modeling and you're saying the same thing happens with nutrition, diet and food in their environment. It's just so wonderful to hear and, and maybe pressure on parents, but it's not, you're not, 
you know, you're just explaining what's happening to you. And just that, like you said, is really empowering. I love everything that we've spoken about today. I don't want it to end. <laughs> We're going to have to have you back. <laughs> we'll do a part two. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm, I'm wondering for a parent now who's listened to this entire episode and they're like, okay, where do I begin? What are sort of the, the guidelines that you can yeah. offer them? Start with yourself. As always, start with yourself. Look at what you're modeling. Look at how you're eating. Look at, start becoming aware of how what you're eating and drinking is impacting how you're feeling and functioning. I think a lot of parents really struggle. They want to be more, whether we call it uh positive parenting, responsive parenting, gentle parenting, you know, insert your whatever term, more attuned, you know, parents, they want to be that regulated presence for their kids and they're struggling with it. It generally isn't because you have a lack of information or strategies. It's because you're struggling to regulate yourself to do it. And a big part of that regulation for us as parents is What's happening with our blood sugar? Are we giving our brains and our bodies what they need to be more steady and regulated? Start there and start modeling. You know, my kids usually see me walking around with whatever in my cup all day long or stopping at the drive-thru. You know what? I'm going to start modeling drinking more water. Notice what that does for you. And then spotlight that for your kids, right? So whatever it is, start with yourself because what we do and what our kids see us doing is far more powerful a message than what we tell them to do. And if you are a mom or a dad listening, who is like, I already, you know, do all that. I've got all that under control. Great. Then start looking at the things in your pantry, start looking at, and just being aware of how much sugar and start looking at some of those simple things. Like, can I get my child drinking more water? Can I get them exploring and, and doing more around, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and more produce and taking some of those steps. But I think really for most people listening, start with yourself, become aware of how, what you're eating is impacting how you feel and function, get your feet under you with that for yourself, and then have that trickle down with your kids. Can I just ask, do you recommend parents who may not see a behavior, an obvious behavioral um, problem to have their children checked for micronutrient deficiencies or micro, like their status? If a child is growing well, and if they're not having any symptoms, if they are well-regulated, they are developmentally on track, they're sleeping well, like if there's no evidence of things, but is a toddler ever <laughs> just is it can you ever describe as a toddler as being totally regulated? Well, no, so. no, definitely not. But we would right. not expect them to be right. So it's sort no. of like what's the developmental expectation versus how significant? Like there's toddler dysregulation, and then there's toddlers with severe dysregulation that is way outside the realm of what we would expect, right? Um, and so those kids, we want to be looking at these things. I think my my rule of thumb is. If as a parent, you ever have a concern, best to check it out. Iron on a very basic level can be checked with a finger stick in your healthcare practitioner's office. If we're more concerned about issues, we do a blood draw to look at um, serum ferritin to look at different, different markers that give us a better picture. I think some baseline screening of these things really should be standard. And unfortunately, it's not. Vitamin D is another one. Even if your kid's not having any issues, everybody, especially in the era now that we are living in and have been through with a major viral pandemic, everyone should be aware of their vitamin D status. It is that critical for immune function, for mental health, for all of that. So I, I would like to see us move in a direction 
where some of these at least screening markers are done, you know, at least at annual well checks for children and for adults. But I think iron and vitamin D are the big ones. And then if you do have any concerns, particularly if your child's not sleeping well, particularly if you're a parent, which I think is probably a lot of your listening audience who they're doing all the things, right? They're doing all the good parenting things. They're aware of this stuff. They're they're working on having this more regulated response, right? They're, they're breaking maybe some of these cycles of the ways that they, they were parented and they're still really struggling and going, it doesn't seem to matter what I do. My kid is not responding to this. We're not getting any traction. Um, in those cases, I'd start to look at some of these things because there probably is something there that's getting in the way. Do you recommend vitamin D supplements for all children? I do, absolutely. And I think that is, that's really a pretty accepted um, stance. Now, at this point, there are differences of opinions um, among different types of, of practitioners, even within the medical community, about how much we should be supplementing. But it is very well accepted at this point that we should be supplementing at least to the RDA um, you know, standard with that and often well beyond that um, and uh, for, for kids and for adults. And a part of it depends on um, ethnicity, how dark your skin um, is. Part of it depends on where you live in the world and how much sun exposure you get. Like here, I live in Michigan. Here, It's pretty gray from the end of October through about the middle of April. It's just gray. Very, very high need for people to be supplementing with vitamin D during that time. Now, you know, people that I work with who live in Arizona, California, or Florida, who get more sun exposure year round, we may not need to supplement as much, right? But, but so, so there are some factors there, but yeah, it's generally accepted now that we should at least do some minimal vitamin D supplementation. And depending on what kids are eating too, I mean, um, if they're drinking cow's milk, most cow's milk, at least here in the US is fortified with some vitamin D. There are other foods that are fortified with some nutrients. So you can look at that, um, look at that as well. But um, yeah, I think in general, it's an important thing to be thinking about. And any brands in particular, or do you, is that just, yeah. yeah, that's a whole nother discussion, but here's what I'll say about brands is quality matters. And the research is clear about this studies that have been done on products, um, sort of, uh, there was a study done several years ago now, and I, I'm going to blank on the authors of it, but it was a really important study. It was done, uh, looking at consumer supplement products. And what they did was they pulled them off regular store shelves, uh, mass market stores, places like Walgreens, Walmart, Target, you know, uh, and I'm not calling them out. It was a variety, CVS, all, all of these stores. And they pulled like the um, generic brand and some of the, the real inexpensive ones off the shelf. And when they looked at what's in them, uh, not what's on the label, some of them, not even anything that was on the label. Many of them had um, contaminants or levels that were not what the label said. So quality in the supplement world matters because they are not regulated by the FDA, which is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it means we all have those tools readily accessible to us without a prescription. It's a curse because unscrupulous companies can do what they want with them and, you know, not get in trouble for it. So I always tell people to look at name brand, well-established uh, supplements. So things that you would find either online at, um, you know, health food or supplement 
uh, stores, companies that have been around, you know, for a while, even like here locally going to some of the health food stores, the brands that they carry are going to be more quality brands. And of course, for kids and adults who need, you know, therapeutic levels, or we're doing targeted nutrient therapy as part of their, um, their treatment there, we're looking at medical grade supplements that you get through practitioners. We're not looking at things on the store shelves by and large, but just be wise about that. If you pick up a bottle of something and you're like, wow, it's two 99 and there's 120 uh, in here and whatever, you know, I mean, maybe it's okay, but probably not so much. So I think it, it's an area where you, you probably don't want to like bargain shopping for your supplements is probably not the best avenue. Not that you have to spend a ton either, but you know, when something is a, as a name brand versus not. So I'll have to check. I was going to run to Costco right after our conversation, not to get vitamins for the whole Costco, family. Costco actually, Costco has several, um, several brands that they carry. Um, and in fact, their Kirkland brand, um, is decent for really? a lot of oh, those good. things. Now, again, <laughs> If somebody was having symptoms and we were doing like a therapeutic targeted nutrient plan, I probably wouldn't use, um, you know, Kirkland, but, um, but actually some of those are, are certainly okay. Um, you also want to look at sourcing, um, the ones that have the label that says they've been independently verified that have the seal on them that says that they are, you know, like for something like omega threes, that they are sustainably sourced. That's important. So you just, you look at some of those things and you say, okay, there's some things on here that look like, um, you know, this company has, has put some effort into this and yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I I'm halfway through your book and I'm enjoying it so much. I think that what I, what I noticed in the first few chapters, when you had that long list of, you know, is your child experiencing ABC and the entire, it hit me that there are so many things that a child could be experiencing that could be, you know, affected by their diet. And with our conversation today, you've clarified so much. And I really appreciate the information you shared with us. So where can our listeners um, reach out to you or learn more from you? Yeah. So my website is drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. And I've got lots of articles, videos, downloads, all kinds of things they can access there. They can also find my podcast, The Better Behavior Show there, which is really focused on integrative, um, you know, approaches to all of this stuff. Um, The Better Behavior Show is also on all the podcast players. um, And I do two episodes a week and those are totally free. Like anybody can access those. Um, And then on social media, I hang out mostly on Instagram, um, a bit on Facebook, but mostly on Instagram. And that's at Dr. Nicole Birkins. Um, And I try to post regularly. We've got a great community of people over there. So come come hang out with us and, and learn more. I'll link all of these on our website page and uh, your book as well, right, is available on Amazon. Yeah. So my book, Life Will Get Better, that's the book that I wrote for parents. It's um, several years old now, but still totally um, relevant. And you can find that on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure we're going to be speaking to you again, because there will be lots of questions from the audience for a follow up. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great.